0: All right. Um, so we've been going through uh, the Apostles' Creed, and let's see. We got any seats? Raise your hand if you have a seat beside you. One up here, one right here. Going to be able to squeeze y'all in. No one wants this. Uh, sorry, Lauren. Um, okay, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed, and we've been thinking about how the Creed uh, gives us a, a lens. Uh, To help us see the world Understand who we are and who God is Um, So Brief recap When we confess uh, our belief in God It tells us something about um, That the world around us has Purpose and intentionality When we confess belief in God It gives us a foundation for morality (coughs) To confess belief in God Teaches us to to view humans In a particular way As those created in God's image uh, With particular dignity and calling uh, to confess belief in God gives us hope and life after death uh, and foundation for truth. When we confess, uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, we're confessing uh, that Jesus is one who is truly God and truly human. Uh, we are confessing that, that this human, Jesus, um, gives us the best image, the best glimpse of what God is like. And he also teaches us something about who we are to be like. What's it mean to be human? When we put on the lenses of the creed and we look at ourselves and others through it, uh, to confess Jesus as the one who is truly human tells us something about what our lives are to be about. Uh, I wish I could remember the exact um, phrase, but it was something like repetition with difference uh, is the way this guy described what we do as, as Christians, that we are in some ways repeating uh, some of Jesus' practices, but doing it in a different way, in a different culture, a different context, and obviously not as uh, divinity, uh, but, but as those who are trying to repeat his mission uh, to uh, bring restoration and reconciliation. So Paul refers to us as ministers of reconciliation, or Peter calls us a kingdom of priests, uh, those tasked with doing uh, the work that uh, we are called to do. To confess belief in the Holy Spirit is to confess something about the nearness of God. um, uh, His power at work within us. We are not doing this with our own strength alone. Uh, His love that is poured out upon us. And it's also confessing something that at the heart uh, of all reality is this triune being. And as impossible as that is to fully grasp, it does tell us something about the heart of all reality is this relationship of love. And again, when we look at the world through those kinds of lenses, it teaches us something about uh, reality and about our own lives, uh, about our own calling. To confess uh, the church, belief in the church, is to confess something about our need for community. We uh, cannot do the Christian thing uh, simply as individuals. Um, It's calling us to a kind of solidarity. And so today we are looking at the confession uh, of the forgiveness of sins. So this might seem like, yeah, we all know about forgiveness of sins. Um, can we just speed on past this? But I would suggest if we, um, if we continue thinking of that metaphor, what does it mean to see the world uh, in such a way uh, that is shaped by the confession of forgiveness of sins? So uh, maybe we can start at this from the negative side. So here's what my, um, my own doctoral advisor writes about the human condition apart from God. So, New Testament description, what's the human condition apart from God? The New Testament describes us as in slavery, as having a hardness of heart, being lost, friendship with the world, living according to the sinful nature, having a reprobate mind, darkened heart, enemies of God, and dead in our trespasses. This is kind of the uh, the dark side of uh, the confession of forgiveness of sins. It is um, a a willingness to honestly look at the human condition apart from God. Apart from God, we experience slavery to sin, and um, uh, we are in some ways enemies of God and dead in our trespasses. Kind of things we don't like to really admit, at least maybe in much contemporary, maybe popular culture. We don't want to talk about in any way that a person might be seen as an enemy of God. Um, We want to jump ahead to forgiveness, to reconciliation. uh, But those kind of ideas only make sense with the shadow side of all this, of our condition apart from God. And uh, when we get into things like um, uh, Pelagianism, we'll see um, how that is, kind of built into a Christian view of humanity. Um, to remove this idea of uh, our brokenness, our lostness apart from God, and to just jump ahead to reconciliation, um, uh, creates something that becomes essentially unchristian. We don't need God. We don't need salvation. We don't need forgiveness. But to confess we need these things is to confess this is where we are apart from it. We cannot... Um, be made whole, we cannot be made right unless God intervenes. These are the lenses that we look through. Um, we might want to remove this idea. No, no, we don't like this. We don't want God uh, to view us this way. But to to remove that portion uh, of the creed is to essentially saw off the limb um, that we want to sit upon that tells us something about God's love for us uh, and God's reconciling work. But this is... This is bread and butter of New Testament. You can't get apart away from this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James. We are in trouble unless God intervenes. That is the human condition. If you can't accept that, uh, then that will be a sticking point on the Christian um, framework for you. Um, this lens of forgiveness tells us something about uh, the reality of guilt uh, that we bear, apart from God's forgiving work, uh, punishment uh, that may be coming our way. It's a confession. To confess the forgiveness of sins is to say, we admit that we have gone wrong in our actions, in our intentions, in our hearts. We have sinned against God, against others, against ourself, and against creation. Not exciting things to confess, but we can't just jump ahead to uh, forgiveness, to reconciliation, to new heavens and new earth without recognizing uh, our condition apart from God. Before I move on to the better part of this, any questions, concerns? Not stuff we like to dwell on, but perhaps not a bad idea to dwell on occasionally. All right. Well Josh is the trap all of you dwell on that
1: that's where you stay.
0: Um I don't because
1: think the, other, the 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 more you seem yeah. the more you dwell, the deeper the gulf, right? And the more you dwell so and then you figure out well, it's just it's just
0: Yeah, you can get into an unhealthy place where it's kind of self loathing or um, it's all about how bad you are. Um, and I, I wouldn't say we need to live there, but we need to live in the whole story. So instead of just overemphasizing, as maybe has been done in some churches and some places where it's all about the guilt and all about the damnation and all about, you know, uh, you do one wrong thing and you, you say a curse word and a car wreck and that's it for you. You know, like there is, there is an unhealthy side of maybe dwelling on it, but uh, there's also an unhealthy side of ignoring it. Exactly. So a proper balance, and this is why we're, we say the whole creed. Uh, you know, it, it confesses uh, forgiveness of sins, but also Jesus' death. Um, and his death, uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll get to that in just a second, but it teaches us something about the nature of sin and um, and its weightiness. Yeah, David? Is that similar to how we are less prone to lament and kind of focus on lament? Is that part of lamenting? Is focusing on that, on the, on the sin portion? Um, it can be, I, I guess... I don't know what all falls into technical lament. I typically think of lament as uh, or crying out to God because things aren't right. Um, but I guess you could think of something like Psalm 32 or 51 might be kind of lament where David says, you know, this is terrible and it's my fault. Uh, I don't, do you know the technicalities of if that would fall into lament?
2: think lament is more a way of responding to evil and the reality of suffering and questioning where is God. But um, I also think there is some sense in which there's a sensibility maybe that's shared, which is that um, in recognizing your need for God and your sin, and kind of, yeah, you could, we might call it lamenting our condition. Saying, <coughs> I, for instance, like, I, I want to get over a certain sin that seems to be prevalent, uh, mm-hmm. can be what turns us to God. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, there, I think I've experienced my own kind of lament in that of, all right, you have overcome sin and death, your spirit dwells within me, then why am I still doing this? Why, you know, where are you, God, uh, if you are so present? So yeah, I think that's a, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, so to confess forgiveness implies that our wrongs can't simply be forgotten. Uh, that, but that they must be dealt with. Um, it also implies that we are incapable of fully righting our wrongs. I confess forgiveness of sins. I can't fix this situation on my own. We need mercy, not simply justice. And we are confessing that if God doesn't have mercy, we are in trouble. So forgiveness is not an inalienable an right. Justice might be, not necessarily forgiveness. We shouldn't presume, I think as maybe uh, is a popular way of looking at, at God, we shouldn't presume that God has to forgive or turn a blind eye. A holy and just God must right the wrong of sin. The question then becomes, how will he right the wrong of sin? The good news, as we know for us Christians, is that he was pierced for our wrongdoings and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We can't presume upon this, but we can accept it as grace, as gift. In the Christian worldview, God is not simply a kindly, grandfatherly figure who can easily forgive sin as if sin weren't really that big of a deal. Instead, when we look to the cross, we see precisely what a big deal sin is. Its presence is so corrosive, its damage is so far-reaching, its guilt is is so damning that the only way to undo its effects, the only way to undo the effects of sin, is for God to become human, suffer, and die. In his life and death, Jesus exposes sin for what it is. He defeats its power. He bears its punishment. He reverses its devastating effects, and he displays his unimaginable love and mercy. The resurrection is proof that Jesus won, and sin lost. God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. So we must receive forgiveness as a gift that flows from God's grace and mercy. Questions so far? Get a sense of uh, the, the gravity of sin. The cross points us to the gravity of sin. Um, our, our maybe predominant pop culture lenses wants to make sin not a big deal. It's light, it's not that damaging, Uh, it doesn't really control us. The lens of the cross and the confession of forgiveness of sin says no. Sin is way more corrosive, way more damaging, way more enslaving, Uh, so much so that humans alone can't overcome it.
1: So, can you talk a little bit about,
0: we've talked about salvation and... Especially in Church of Christ, be over individualized. Mm-hmm. That can sin also be over individualized. And then, so like some of the movement that I see with the kind of pop culture mm-hmm. is focusing almost more, but like the pendulum is swinging and it's focusing more on systematic mm-hmm. social injustices. Yeah, great. So I guess, like, what's the balance there? I would say the balance. <laughs> yeah, there. Um, I mean, there's no getting away from the. Uh, I think. I think the New Testament has both. I think we see the the very personal, individual problem with sin, uh, but that because we are in societies and stuff, it, it becomes corporate and um, communal sin as well. So, I think. Um, I think we need to hold both intentions, so I, I don't know if I have anything to add other than you're right on, that, that instead of following the pendulum swing to either extreme, we recognize our own individual sins. And we recognize that when you get lots of individuals uh, who are enslaved to sin, it's going to create societal issues that are kind of corrupted by sin as well. Um, not to mention other kind of powers uh, that might um, intensify that whole thing. Um, which the good news is that Jesus has defeated all that. Um, the less good news is that we don't feel the full effects of that yet, but we look forward to it. Others in the
1: reconciliation also starts with the individual, and a lot of individuals attempting to reconcile can. Yeah, be more yeah, systematic.
0: yeah. So it's uh, so if we're thinking about then Christian mission, those who are forgiven, then. Yeah, who have been reconciled to God, then experience that reconciliation with one another, and hopefully, do not only. So forgiveness of sins is not just for me, but it has a larger communal kind of piece to it that can flow from that. And maybe there's um, there had been a pattern of stopping short. I get forgiveness. That's it. Just kind of bide my time till I die and go to heaven. Um, and maybe now it's. I don't so much need forgiveness. We just need God to bring justice to you know, get us better laws or better societies. And um, neither, neither is fully wrong. Neither is fully right. Um, uh, so God doesn't force this grace of forgiveness and freedom upon people, uh, but He makes it available to them. And we read in the New Testament how people put themselves in a position to receive God's gift of forgiveness through the practices of confession repentance, and baptism. I think of Christian confession as threefold. We confess that we have sinned and need mercy. There's this kind of humble uh, move. We've done wrong. We have sinned against God, against others, against ourselves, and we can't fix it. We can't do enough good to tip the scales. Uh, I, I love uh, C.S. Lewis's um, uh, um, analogy of a kid who borrows... Sixpence from his dad, uh, and he goes and buys his dad a gift with that sixpence, and he gives it back to his dad. And you know his dad loves it, he enjoys it, but his response is, "The dad is sixpence, none the richer," which became a band name. But but what he's saying is, you can only give back to God what He gave you to begin with. So we can never uh, fully kind of tip the scales, right? We can even out our good and bad because. Whatever good we do was already given to us by God. We're simply giving back to Him what He gave to us to begin with. Uh, so there is no... Um, if we're relying on karma, we're in trouble. We need grace, not karma. Uh, we need mercy, not simply justice. Uh, so we confess we have sinned and need mercy. We confess our faith in Christ by trusting Him to rescue us. So we put our faith in Him and we confess by pledging our own faithfulness to Christ as our King, Lord, and Savior. We practice repentance, not just by feeling bad, which is what we've often associated repentance with, but repentance is about orienting our lives around the King and His kingdom, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we don't do this alone, but are aided by the Holy Spirit. And in baptism, this sacred act marks the believer being united with Christ's death and resurrection. So you can read about this in Romans 6, but we die to our former life, characterized by the guilt and control of sin, and are raised to a new life, characterized by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, since we've received grace, mercy, and forgiveness, we are to be a people characterized by grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So a very simple, or maybe not so simple, but a very common idea, forgiveness of sins, uh, has pretty significant implications for how we view the world. Um, when we kind of slow down and focus on it a bit more. Matt Lauren, you want to add anything to that before you talk about Pelagianism? Our need for God and forgiveness? All right.
2: So our heresy or heterodoxy for today is Pelagianism, which sounds probably very irrelevant to us. It's actually one of the most relevant of the heresies we've discussed uh, because I think we see evidence of a tendency towards it actually on kind of all ends of the spectrum of Christian living, both liberal and conservative, you might say, Um, because we live in a culture that is inclined to have a sort of optimistic view of the human that uh, thinks that we have a pretty good setup, that we're wired to be good people and to make decent choices without assistance from anyone. Um, And so that's one message we hear a lot in our culture about um, making good choices. And there's different ways of framing that, right, from depending on where you sit politically. But that creeps in, I think, to our our thinking about our need for God's grace. So this controversy that happened in the late 4th century, um, and then he... Pelagius lived into uh, the 5th century, It was focused on grace and sin. Uh, Pelagius was essentially a moral reformer whose theology of grace entailed that humans are essentially and morally unaffected by the fall, by fall into sin. So what that meant for him is that he thought that our packaging, the way we are, is essentially the way it was in the garden. That before sin entered the picture, that... We were, we're the way we are right now, that we have the potential to choose the good or choose the bad, and that what we ultimately needed was Christ's example. Christ saves us by his example. We didn't need something else, some other kind of infusion of grace, um, that really we just didn't have the, quite the right idea because we hadn't seen anyone do it quite right up until then, up until Christ came. So he thinks that what happened with the Old Testament covenant, for example, was um, that it was just a little bit confusing? It was somewhat muddled. That we didn't we had all the equipment, just not really the right example. So when Christ came and lived this out perfectly, now oh, now we see what it means to really live into God's will. So Augustine, who you've heard us reference several times, one of the most important theologians in, in Christian history, um, entered into this this really kind of heated debate with Pelagius over these issues, and his emphasis was that. Um, Essentially, he's saying, Pelagius, you have a a far too optimistic view of the human package. That um, what we lost when we fell into sin was even the ability to choose the good. We lost our desire for God because sin is like a kind of infection or a kind of um, a weight, you might say, that's kind of um, weighing down your desire. So we still have free choice in the sense that, you know, if I want to eat a hamburger, I can go buy it right? Augustus says we still have that kind of choice, but what we lack now is the ability to choose God, the ability to even want God, because um, our, now our desires are confused. Our desires are misdirected, so it's not that wanting a burger is misdirected, per se. depends on if you're a vegetarian or not. Um, it's that we don't ultimately desire union with God. We ultimately just desire uh, misdirected things, So um, he says what we really need is something like uh, a reorientation of the will, first of all. I have to be oriented away from a sinful desire towards the right one. And then I need help moving towards it continually over the course of my life. That's why we need the sacraments of baptism, which is the reorientation. And we need uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which continually feeds us and pushes us on our way towards God. And all that happens in the context of the communion of saints, the, the, which is the church. Now, where Augustine himself becomes kind of controversial is in his emphasis that we can't even um, do anything to sort of say yes to God, perhaps, that even the saying yes is a gift. And so that's where his writing gets sort of parsed out into all these different debated positions. Uh, a little bit later um, in the 5th century, the what's called the Council of Orange, uh, kind of hammered this out and said, well, humans have the ability to say yes or no to the gift of grace, but after that, that I mean, that's kind of where our free will enters in. But it's always, one thing that all these theologians are gonna say, including Augustine, is that the human will has to cooperate with the divine will. And the way we do that is in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So we have to find ways to uh, invite the Spirit into our lives. And they were really emphatic that that happens in the context of the church and the sacraments. We've moved away from that some in our culture and think about it more in terms of just being a good person. So you see where that danger can sneak in, in thinking, if I'm just a good person, God's going God's to gonna like me. Um, and so the way they're dealing with questions of, for example, why are there good people outside of the church? Well... Some theologians would say that possibility even exists because of the Incarnation, because humanity and divinity were kind of reacquainted in the Incarnation, and the benefits of that spread out through time because of Christ, because of what Christ has done. But then the next step, which is the possibility of transformation and reconciliation with God further into the likeness of Christ, that only happens if you're linked up to the body of Christ, which is the Church. According to, according to the way most of these theologians are working this out. Now, we, some theologians have the possibility of salvation through Christ, even outside of Christianity, by virtue of kind of being what uh, one theologian, Carl Rahner, called an anonymous Christian, which is the idea that um, you actually are serving Christ by the virtuous life that you're living, even though you may think you're serving a different God. So that possibility exists too. So you see there's a lot of, this is, this is a pretty complicated issue. Um, I don't know if what I said was clear enough. I'm trying to, to fit a lot in into what Augustine and Pelagius were, were debating. Um, essentially, Augustine, What I think the key thing is there is to, to just realize that Augustine's influence influence on the tradition has kind of solidified the fact that we say that our desires are influenced by sin. We're unable to refrain from sin without grace, without God giving us some sort of um, kind of divine help. And because of God's grace, we desire the good. And because of, because of God's grace, we move towards the good. And eventually, what we look forward to in the eschaton, when all things are made new, is the freedom no longer to sin, the freedom to, to always only choose God. But until then, we're still weighed down by this. So one way that I've heard this explained that I found helpful by a teacher of mine who was an Augustine scholar is he said one way you could think of it to kind of keep all this clear is uh, when we do the wrong thing, it's our fault. When we do the right thing, it's because of God's influence. And we are always cooperating with God's influence somehow. It's like our will moving in tandem with God's will is our greatest freedom. It's also when we feel ourselves most led by someone else, in some sense. So I'm wondering, I haven't paused enough for Matt to add. I I
1: think a way to to explain what you were saying is that the debate between Augustine and Pelagianism has everything to do with what Josh mentioned, which is an understanding of of the fundamental human condition. And for Augustine, the fundamental human condition is really bad. Mm that we are totally depraved. When, when Adam fell, he ruined the rest of us forever. If we do anything good, even our turning to God himself comes from God. Grace is everything. In other words, when it comes to salvation, God always does all of the work. We can't do any of it. For Pelagius, on the other hand, his view of human nature is... We'll call it high, which is every one of us at the moment of our birth is like we get to be Adam all over again, just like Adam did. We don't inherit sin. We can choose just like Adam did to a believer or, not, or to obey or not. And most of us mess up, but it's... In other words, we do some of the work, right? But we're not... Things aren't hopeless for us. It's possible for us, Pelagius would say, to live a perfect life. Jesus showed us how to do it. All we need to do is do it. Most of us don't, but it's a high bar. The difference comes when people misunderstand Augustine. If everything we do, good, comes from God, and I find myself unable to resist that particular temptation, then God obviously hasn't given me the gift yet. It's not my fault. Pelagius would say you don't need God's help to make a good decision. Just make the right decision. Does that that sort of make sense? That's kind of a simplification, but, but they're fundamentally different ideas about the human condition. In American culture, we tend to slide this way often because of our political traditions, Coming from Rousseau, Montaigne, where human beings are tabula rasa; that society makes us good or bad. We're born innocent as creatures of nature, like Adam, although he's not particularly religious. We tend to go this way. We tend to say things like, "God helps those who help themselves." We tend to think, if we sin, it's our fault. We could choose not to sin and be better people. If we do a better job of being better people, Augustine would say, you can't be better. If you look better, it's because God has made you better. It's not because of anything you've done. Does that make
2: sense? And one thing that's interesting about Pelagius is that it might give us a little more, um, I don't know, grace for him, is that he was speaking in a context in which he perceived Christians being lazy about being uh, actually working towards their salvation. So if we think about what the implications are in um, Philippians 2, uh, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You hear there, there's a paradox, right? You're continuing to work it out. Why? Because God is at work within you. There's the cooperation I'm talking about, which feels like a both and, like you're trying to have it both ways in some sense. But one way we can think about this is that salvation itself is a gift, and it's primarily a gift. It's initiated by God. It's made possible by God. We couldn't do. We couldn't accomplish any of this without God. So in that sense, we can say no to this high view of humanity. We can say no to what Pelagius was thinking. But we don't want to sit down here and think, well, I might as well not even try. I might as well not even give it my best shot. Because what's clear in Scripture is that what's always being emphasized, and one reason maybe Paul had to write so many letters, <coughs> is because he's saying it's both. You're doing both. You welcome God's help into your life by working out your salvation. And it is God at work within you. So honor your, your body as the temple of God. By doing this work, and God will transform you, just as God has already transformed you for you to even be a part of this. Maybe maybe, uh, Maybe uh, I would add
0: to that. Yeah. The um, so you know the uh, fundamental issue here is is our need for God, Um, and to to disagree with Pelagius doesn't mean you have to go full on Augustinian here and believe, or even full-on Calvin and believe, well, then it must be all predestination. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, even those who believe in things like free will, uh, like John Wesley would say, even, even Wesley here, who often disagrees with Calvin, says, the human condition, essentially the human condition apart from God is we can't choose God unless God enables us to do that. And so that, this, didn't this, that lead
1: them to the mourner's bench experience where you would yeah, literally come yeah. and pray for a miracle to happen to enable
0: you to respond? Um, I can't remember how all that's been.
2: Richard may have that. Yeah, that's okay. Putting you on the spot there, Richard. The mourner's bench. I know they wanted to
0: have that experience to kind of ensure uh, uh, salvation. Uh, but, but the basic kind of across tradition, 1900 years, <coughs> whether you were Calvinist or Arminian, or Wesleyan, you believe that the only way you choose God is if God enables you. Now you can go a little further like Augustine and Calvin say and then God forced you into that or you can be more like Wesley and say God enables and he kind of lets you then choose him. It's like you're drowning and someone throws you a life preserver. You have the choice to hold on to it but you're not saving yourself here. Uh, you know that's that's the most you can do is just hold on. And That's Wesley. Human condition apart from God we can't save ourselves. That's that's the problem with Pelagianism. And that's what I think Lauren is right on. Today, the idea is we can do it. I found God. No, you didn't. God found you.
1: So, George, since we don't do sin, baptism, are we seeing that semi-Pelagians? That's,
2: that's a great question. And the way... So when... That's actually how the, the practice of infant baptism became so common, is because of this doctrine, this view that, well, we better, um, imp- you know, we better initiate infants into the body of Christ via the sacrament because it is entirely about something happening to us. What happens later when we have the Reformation and we have uh, the Anabaptists and the Arminians, they're looking at Scripture and saying, there's something more important about the human response to the invitation of grace and so we come out of that tradition that says um, that a child isn't going to hell before this age of accountability. Now, that gets kind of fuzzy, what that age is. Yeah,
0: so you've got to parse out Augustine as well, uh, or, or this idea of we might inherit a sinful disposition or a kind of brokenness, but that's different than saying we therefore inherit guilt. Uh, and so part of the reason you might baptize infants is if you believe you've inherited guilt as well as, well as the kind of predisposition to, but if you believe in something like the age of accountability somewhere in that, then you're saying there's still a kind of uh, problematic disposition, but there's no guilt being uh, accrued here. So that's why you don't have to baptize infants, because they're not guilty.
2: And there is this this real importance that's recognized about the response of the person receiving grace, about the cooperative piece, that this really does involve our response. Well, to
1: what extent I want Wanted to be influenced by the helplessness he felt about the corruption in his own life. By, he lived 30 years or more, uh, in a free-spirited place. He knew it mm-hmm. and felt helpless about it. Yeah. Did uh, that shape his theology?
2: I, I think so. And a lot of people a lot of people look at his biography and say that, that very thing, that his sense of his own how deeply rooted sin was in his life and then how transformed he was by grace really probably influenced his view of of all of this. Uh, So just to parse this out, I feel like this is a really complicated conversation that I've
0: had a lot of conversations about. So like with the view you're kind of I guess
2: advocating maybe, um, is it basically kind of like Instead of what, you know, like, Augustine or Calvin might say, where some people are predestined to receive grace to be able to say yes and others aren't, that maybe this is saying that, like, all people receive that. And then, at that point, it just becomes a matter of, like, how you respond to it. Because I know, like, in a Calvinist perspective, at least, it's like, you know, if you receive the grace, you can't say no. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to say yes. Like mm-hmm. that you know, they wouldn't think that, like, there's even a choice in that regard. So is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah, that's right. And again, it is a really big conversation. But so one way of working that out is, for example, some theologians say perhaps it will be that the offer of grace has been extended to all people in some sense we don't understand. Perhaps it will be even at the moment of death that we all encounter Christ and have a moment of response it's a mystery, but theres it's always trying to sort out the witness of Scripture on this point to God's love for the entire world. The, the act of grace was for all of us. And yet, in this life, if salvation begins now and transformation begins now, there is something really unavoidably important about becoming a member of the body of Christ. So, I, I, yeah, we need the, to stop. But. Yeah,
0: in the Calvinist system, too, like limited atonement. God's grace doesn't actually extend to everybody. It's limited. And it's I for irresistible. I mean, I'm sure you know this. So he gives it to you, you you can't resist it. Whereas um, Wesleyans and Arminians would believe in something like prevenient grace, which is God, it's still God's work. He's enabling you to do what you couldn't do, but he's enabling you to choose, Mm -hmm. as opposed to he is is forcing you to, to make this. He's enabling, so he kind of elevates you maybe <laughs> to something like a blank slate but not because you are a blank slate but because he makes that gift possible so it's still grace and this is why we're not blatant we're sending glacier. and I think the tulip system creates it's simple it's, it's you know it's like sounds logical but then it creates a really problematic view of God um, and that's why I think this more nuanced and messy convenient grace thing ends up a better witness to Scripture than to it.
2: Matt, we it's 1048. Is there anything one, you would add? Or? One, one comment. You sure. should be careful
1: not to dismiss somebody like Augustine because he grew up helpless any more than you and I who we went to church every Sunday and grew up perfect. <laughs> I,
0: I didn't
2: grow up perfect, but... But yes, I, I agree. And I... I
0: Oh, a lot to Augustine, so... Mm. Anything you would want to say in closing? No, not working. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to leave us in the creed? Oh, yeah, let's say so the grief. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, of our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary.
2: All right. One piece. <clears throat>